Take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16. I struggled with how to title this message today and wavering between the two. One, a very negative title. The other, very positive. One you have in your bulletin, Jerusalem, the harlot, as opposed to amazing grace. You're going to see both of these titles reflected as we move through this very long text, uh, but you'll see why God's love is so amazing and so merciful and so gracious to us. When I was younger, I could have definitely been accused of breaking what we call pulpit decorum in an attempt to be more relevant and what some would say more edgy we preachers can be tempted into using shocking language or refer to certain sins or embarrassing, shameful situations to make congregations hopefully more attentive. So I have been guilty of throwing caution to discernment to say some very stupid things in my past in hopes to gain a congregation's attention, not to say that I will not say stupid things in the future. I'm very capable and more than likely will. But I have been guilty of that. There are a lot of preachers who will use such tact. Preachers in every denomination, whether they be liberal or conservative, reformed or non-reformed. No matter the reputation of a preacher, no matter how faithful a preacher has been, no matter how successful or trustworthy a preacher has been. I suggest to you, Grace family, it is always good to be critical, constructively critical, of a preacher's tact and speech. Because there are some places that we should not go in our sermons. There are some things that we should not say, especially behind the pulpit. Certain tactics that we should not use. Decorum in our delivery is usually what is best. We preachers, we demand your attention, and some of us will do almost anything to get it. And many of us think that being real is a good tactic to get attention. So some preachers enjoy making an audience feel uncomfortable. They think that creating such an environment will better invite undivided attention. And that may be so, but the older I get, the more I personally want to err on the side of decorum being proper and polite. This is a terrifying thing to stand behind a pulpit. We must be reverent. With all that said, there are some biblical texts, however, that will simply not allow us to do that. And we have a text like that before us today. Because of such content, we will read in this text, as well as others like it, Many a preacher, even some of the greats, have questioned whether or not this text should be read in a public congregational setting. One of those preachers was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He questioned the propriety of reading this text in public. He says, and I quote, a minister can scarcely read this in public. 
Now, I most usually do not disagree with Charles Spurgeon, but I do a bit here. And perhaps to my own foolishness. In my personal belief, all scripture is proper and it should be given the liberty to be read before any audience. And just because it makes us uncomfortable does not make it inappropriate. Just because God's word upsets our rules of decorum certainly does not make the reading of his word inappropriate. Much of the reason why we avoid preaching and reading such texts is that we fail to understand the reason for such expression. God's speech is holy and is undeniable and irrefutable truth. It is absolute truth. There may be times when we read such a text and say, wow, I cannot believe the Bible put it that way. And trust me when I tell you, especially for those of you who do not like to read ahead, there's some texts coming down the way in Ezekiel that are going to make your mouths open and gasp. And rather than questioning propriety, it is always our responsibility to do due diligence, especially the preachers, to see the reason and the meaning behind this text. And when we do so, I assure you, you will always find God's word to be appropriate. Always. So as we read this text, you're going to squirm in your seat, or as we stand, you're going to widen your eyes and silently express, wow. But as we work our way through it, you're going to hear a glorious message of God's grace. You will move from saying, I cannot believe God just said that, to I am so thankful God said that. With that said, let's stand in honor of reading the word of God. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, no, I pitied you. To do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out into an open field for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood. I saw to your, to, I saw you in your blood live as I said to you. And I said to your blood live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were of the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. And I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. When I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil, I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. 
Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord. But you trust in your beauty and played the whore because you, you, uh, your renown uh, was lavished by your whorings and it was placed upon any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore to the like which has never been nor shall ever be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and the silver that, I gave you, that I'd given you and made for yourselves images of men. And you also played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also, my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour, oil, and honey. You set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made for yourself a lofty place in the square. And at the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them and you, and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea and even with this you were not satisfied. How lovesick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square, yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated, and I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness and I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into the hands of them and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. And I will make you stop playing the whore and you shall also give payment no more. 
So will I satisfy my wrath on you and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will no more be angry because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this about you. Like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and her children. And you are the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite, your father an Amorite. And your elder sister is Samaria who lived with her daughters to the north of you. And your younger sister who lived to the south of you is Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within very little time you were more corrupt than they were in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has no commit, uh, committed half Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they. They were more in the right than you are. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous." I will restore their fortunes, both fortunes of Sodom and her daughters and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters. And I will restore your own fortunes in their midst that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters, they shall return to their former state and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state and you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered? Now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her and for the daughters of the Philistines, those all around you who you despise. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath in breaking a covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you all that you have done, declares the Lord God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's a long text, many verses, but we can surmise much of it as portions of the text deal with various points and that we'll move through fairly quickly. As we see this allegory, God is, is exposing Jerusalem, Israel's sins that they have committed for so long. But he speaks illustratively or metaphorically of his relationship with them and how they have treated them in the covenant. But he begins with the origins of the city of Jerusalem as he surveys the historical relationship between Israel and their God. 
In verses 1 through 5, just like in the previous chapter, Ezekiel uses symbolic imagery. Previously, we had the parable of the wood from a vine showing the undeniable truth in life. That the prunings of a vine are worthless. Fit only for the fire. And after the fire goes out, there may be some charred branches that have not been consumed by the flame. So in the secondary fires, those charred pieces are thrown back in the fire to be completely consumed. And the moral or the truth of that parable was that Israel has become like the prunings from a vine and the charred pieces that are left over from the initial fires. Judah had initially come through the first fire in 597 when Babylon invaded the city. But though they were beat down, some survived. And these charred pieces of wood were then fit only again to be thrown back into the fire, which the secondary fires would consume the city in 586, when Babylon would come in and completely eradicate them and burn down the remnant of Jerusalem or the remnant portions of the city. Now Ezekiel shifts to a new image. He refers to Jerusalem as the queen city of Judah. But as he moves to describe her as the queen in the relationship with the divine, first in explaining her origins, he describes her first as an unwanted newborn who was thrown into the field to die. And that newborn was the result of a union between two Canaanite peoples, an Amorite father and a Hittite mother. And the point of those verses is that Jerusalem had pagan origins, Canaanite origins. Commentator Ian Dugweed wrote this, quote, the city of Jerusalem's roots in the land are entirely natural and pagan. Before David captured it and made it his capital city, it was an important pagan city in its own right. So the imagery here is that this child was born to heartless parents who abandoned their unwanted newborn daughter into the fields to die. Notice how he shows how the normal care of a newborn was neglected. Verse 4, the umbilical cord was not cut nor was the child washed from the afterbirth, nor was she wrapped tightly in swaddling clothes. Was abandoned, neglected. Verse 5, this suggests that the people may have heard the child crying in the fields, yet they carelessly passed by. Nobody wanted her. The Lord says, you were abhorred in the day you were born. In other words, they looked upon this child who was crying in the field on the ground, lying in a pool of afterbirth and they abhorred her, walked on by. Not only was she left in a pool of blood, but she was not pitied. In fact, she was looked upon in disgust. So verse three, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite who had this offspring, this newborn daughter, and they did not want her, threw, threw her into a field and left her to die. Oh, Jerusalem, this is like your origin. 
your beginnings. Helpless and hopeless. Godless. But notice in verses 6 and 7, someone comes by and has compassion on this helpless newborn. The Lord is described as the traveler who passes by and sees the abandoned child. And instead of having the same reaction as everyone else, he has compassion. He orders the child to live, her blood to live. And this means not just to live, but as the text explains, to grow healthily like a plant in the field. He assured that she would have a healthy and safe upbringing. So it's pictured as this compassionate traveler who looks looks at this child, this helpless child in the field and has compassion and takes her up as his own. And such upbringing this traveler would provide would allow the child to grow up healthily and she would grow into a beautiful woman. And all the descriptions that the Bible gives as this child grows up into a woman, the Bible describes this woman to be beautiful in face and form. Because of the Lord, this pitiful, abandoned baby was rescued. This newborn, lying naked and bare in a pool of blood, was picked up by the Lord, cleaned and clothed to be provided for. To where she would grow healthily and thrive. Jerusalem. O Jerusalem. A city with pagan origins. Godless. Helpless. Hopeless. Was seen by the Lord and chosen. And rescued by the Lord in order to be the queen city of his people. And then we come to verse 8. Which expresses the Lord's covenantal love with the child. The Lord is then described as not only the one who would rescue her, but after assuring her growing into a beautiful woman, the Lord would become her husband. Verse 8 states that when she became old enough for marriage, the Lord, quote, spread the corner of his garment over her, covering her nakedness. What does that mean? In short, especially in the biblical culture, the covering of a woman with one's garment is symbolic of entering into marital relations. See Ruth chapter 3 verse 9. Ian Dugweed, he writes this, quote, This was an act of quasi-legal status affirming the choice of a bride, end quote. And so this expression is thus followed by the Lord saying, quote, I gave you then my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine. This is covenant marriage. Covenant marriage reveals the expectation of biblical marriage. The Lord, the Lord gave an oath, an oath of commitment, which such a solemn oath, such a covenant was commitment for a lifetime. And as we'll eventually see in the Lord's case, a covenant for eternity. So you could also render this text, quote, I made my vow to you. So the Lord entered into a covenant relationship with her, with his bride, Israel. And this type of covenant, biblical marriage, is understood as the most binding of covenants. 
So the nation became the bride of God. Jerusalem belonged to the Lord and to the Lord alone. You would be mine. He would be their God. They would be his people. They, like a bride to a groom, would be his most treasured possession. Covenantal love. So from a helpless, hopeless, godless origin to being selected by God as he looked upon her helplessness and pitied her and had compassion, took her in, provided for her and assured her thriving, growing into a beautiful woman and becoming of meritable age, covenanted with her to become his bride. And then in verses 9 through 14, We note the Lord's provision. Israel had been washed clean, anointed with expensive oil, clothed with the finest clothes, adorned with the most expensive and beautiful jewelry, bracelets and a necklace, piercings for her nose and ears, and finally having a glorious crown then placed on her head. One writer put it this way, quote, virtually every part of the anatomy that could be bejeweled in the ancient Near East was attended to, end quote. Not only that, she would dine at the royal table eating the finest foods, and then the king would show his beautiful bride off to the world. He adorned her with beauty, expensive jewelry, and raiment. She then, quote, went forth among the nations. She received worldwide fame because of the beauty that the Lord had given her. Verse 14, the Lord says, for it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed upon her. So the female newborn, which was unwanted and abandoned just after birth, has now been graciously cleansed. She has grown up into a beautiful woman and now a royal groom has chosen her. She has received all the care she lacked when born and far more. Her life, status, wealth, and beauty all derive from the gracious gift of the one who chose her. She has become his queen and received worldwide status and notoriety. What is emphasized here is that all of this was provided for her by the Lord because of his favor and love for his bride. As we survey historically the nation of Israel, her power and fame throughout her history is all because of the Lord. Listen again to Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, he chose you. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. There in Deuteronomy again, the Lord alludes to Israel coming from the humblest of origins. She was nothing. Most pitiful of nations, but chosen, rescued from slavery and made into a national powerhouse all because of the Lord's mighty hand. The Lord's provision for his bride. And then in verse 15, there's a great and terrible shift in the passage. Up until now, all that the Lord has done to bring attention to his bride. Rescuing her 
from a hopeless condition. Providing for her a healthy upbringing. Lavishing upon her the greatest of gifts that she became his queen. And had splendor among the nations. He was proud of his bride. But notice how she has responded to it in verse 15. Instead of remembering that it was the Lord who had endowed her with all these blessings, she then trusted in her own beauty and prostituted her reputation. Verses 16 through 19 read that her beautiful clothes were then used to adorn the high places where idolatrous worship occurred and to clothe the idols that were housed within the shrines that she had built. The gold and silver were used to manufacture the idols themselves. The flour, oil, and honey which had been given to her for food were then offered instead to the idols. Verses 20 through 21, even the children of the nation whom she bore to the Lord were not safe. They too were taken by her and sacrificed to the idols that she had made. We've already referenced this. Remember the book of Jeremiah? In the fires of Baal, they would burn their children to solicit blessing from lifeless gods. And then in verse 22, the Lord says, In all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your own blood. But he doesn't stop there. As he discusses the bride's infidelity in verses 23 through 34, he then describes the depth of her infidelity. For those of you who have read the prophets, you perhaps are recalling the depiction of Jerusalem's idolatry in terms of Gomer's adultery in the book of Hosea. In Hosea 2, verses 4 through 14, the prophet speaks to the northern kingdom of Israel, those ten tribes to the north, and he compares the nation's rebellion to that of an ungrateful wife who takes the gifts of her husband and foolishly lavishes them on her lovers. Ezekiel takes the same picture here and develops it much further than Hosea. Terminology gets even more graphic. You see, Hosea's Israel was simply a foolish, promiscuous woman. Ezekiel's Jerusalem is a thoroughly depraved and degraded prostitute. Ian Dugwee wrote this, quote, In place of one type of location for her idolatry, i.e. the high places, they are now two. High places and lofty shrines, giving the picture that pagan sites are covering the land. In place of of adultery with idols, there now appear liaisons with human partners. As Dugweed writes, with ever-increasing promiscuity. So the language becomes even more explicit. The Lord says at every street where you built your lofty shrines, you made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whorings. If I would take you to the original language and translate it for you, it would be even more graphic than what I just read to you. To put it, as politely or as best I can, she was offering herself to anyone without discrimination. Anyone and everyone. And the Lord describes her lack of discrimination 
that she prostituted herself. He says, you played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors. Verse 27, God then punished her by taking some of the territory away from Israel, but that served to be of no effect. Also in verse 27, so lewd was her behavior that it even made pagans blush. After giving some of Jerusalem's territory over to the Philistines, they were then ashamed of the Israelite inhabitants' behavior. She purchased more and more participants into her bed of whoredom. Look at verses 28 and 29. The Assyrians joined her along with the Chaldeans. And then in verses 30 through 34, Ezekiel expresses that such behavior went beyond the behavior of a normal prostitute. We just look at some of the descriptions. We'll read them again. In verse 30, How lovesick is your heart, declares the Lord. Because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber as the, at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square, you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. You adulterous wife who received strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to your every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. See, what the Lord means here is He plays on a human situation. Prostitutes are motivated for material gain or out of financial desperation. Jerusalem, however, has been sinning at her own expense, so perverse in her lust that she is actually paying everyone to join her in her depravity. That's why He says you are a brazen prostitute, a prostitute of prostitutes. You go beyond in other words, you must fulfill your lusts and then some more. So you will do whatever it takes, even paying others to join rather than being paid for your service. It's graphic language. Hebrew history reveals this allegory to be true. In the days of Ahaz, Israel jumped in bed with Assyria and made foolish alliances. Read 2 Kings 16. In the days of Hezekiah, she jumped into the arms of the Babylonians. Look at Ezekiel chapter 20. In the days of Zedekiah, she gave herself to Egypt. Read Jeremiah 2 in Ezekiel 17. Commentator Morton Kogan wrote this, quote, These alliances were frequently costly to Judah. For accepting a major power as overlord carried with it a substantial price tag. The Caesarean invariably expected to receive silver and gold as tribute in exchange for protection. Even then, only rarely did they deliver the hoped for help. But the far more expensive cost came in religious terms. An overlord may or may not have forcibly imposed his state religion on the vassal state, but religious effects on the vassal nation were nonetheless real. Behind every act of an international diplomacy stood the gods of the nations as guarantors of compliance. 
For this reason, such international cooperation inevitably involved a measure of recognition of the existence and power of the gods of that nation, along with an implicit affirmation that trusting in the Lord alone was not effective. The temptation to appeal to the gods that had apparently made the other nation great was powerful, end quote. So the depth of her whoredom, illustrated by a brazen prostitute going deeper and deeper into her abominations. And then in verses 35 through 58, the Lord lays down punishment. Again, for Jerusalem, the punishment will fit the crime. Verse 38, the consequence of an adulterous lifestyle will be an adulteress's death. According to the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 22:22, when an adulteress was caught, she was first exposed, stripped naked before the public to subject her to open shame. We see this in verse 40. So Jerusalem's places of idolatry would also be torn down. Her wealth and possessions would be stripped away like a prostitute's clothing, leaving her in a state in which she began, naked and bare, as we read in verse 39. Like the adulteress condemned according to the law of Moses, the Lord then gives the sentence of death upon Jerusalem. In the description of the death sentence, the execution would be brought about by one's peers. Jerusalem's executioners would be the neighboring nations, her former lovers, verse 37. In the law, an adulteress would be stoned by a crowd of peers as she was thrown into a pit to be pelted with stones unto her death. Jerusalem's death would be described as that of an adulteress's execution, stoning, then further, to be cut up into pieces by the sword. Also, as she would be slain and her possessions burned so as to purge the evil from the land, Jerusalem would be slain and her houses Burn. In the text, the punishment fits the crime. Notice the Lord accuses and indicts Jerusalem for two crimes, sins of the high hand, two sins that invoked capital punishment. Adultery and murder. You have slain the children, the blood of the innocent, to solicit blessing from lifeless gods, you've committed murder. And you've committed spiritual infidelity, adultery. As you have made your bed with every lifeless God imaginable by turning your back on your husband, the Lord. Adultery and murder, therefore you shall be slain, cut into pieces, and all of your possessions burned. Graphic language. And in verse 44, the analogy then switches from the husband-wife relationship to the mother-daughter. Verses 44 and 45 proved Israel to be, quote, a chip off the old block by despising her own husband and children. The Lord says, you like mother, like daughter. She is like her mother, the Hittite, who was married to an Amorite, 
but she too was unfaithful to her own husband, and you followed suit. We read in Genesis 15, 16, that these people, their sins had led to their expulsion from the land of Canaan at the time of Joshua. This statement serves not only to link this section with the preceding one, but also to suggest that Jerusalem also will be cut off from the land, just as the pagan Canaanites. Then the analogy shifts to show not only like mother, like daughter, but there's also an extended family resemblance. Israel is not only like her mother, but bears resemblance to her natural sisters, Samaria and Sodom. And the description of these two cities will dominate the rest of the passage. Samaria, remember during the divided kingdom, Judah to the south, Israel, ten tribes to the north, they divided as two nations, as they were to be one people, but they split. Samaria became the capital of northern Israel. But at this point is the former capital. It is described in verse 46 as Jerusalem's older sister. And this would be more symbolic of size rather than age. She is the larger kingdom of the divided kingdom. The northern kingdom was larger in landmass than the sister city to the south or region to the south, Judah kingdom. Sodom, however, is the younger or littler sister. She's geographically small. Samaria lives to the north of Jerusalem, while her daughters, that is the common Semitic idiom for the surrounding villages, they're to the north and Sodom to the south of Jerusalem. What is the point? Jerusalem is surrounded by sinners and fits naturally into their company Jerusalem delights to go along with her sisters. But Ezekiel, or the Lord, gives a more detailed description of Sodom. What this sister lacked in size, she more than made up for in reputation. Along with Sodom's other ugly sister, Gomorrah, it had become a byword for abomination. So we read in Genesis 19 in Isaiah 1. Sodom became a byword for not only nasty sexual sin, but complete and utter destruction. This is why it was such an insult when Jesus said to his hearers in Matthew 10, 15, it is going to be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than it will be for you, O cities of Jerusalem. as well as sexual sin to which it gave its name, which may lay behind the word abominations or detestable things in verse 50. Sodom is here cited for all kinds of sins. Proud, materialistic, she is the epitome of all kinds of terrible sin. She is proud, overfed, untroubled by the cares of life while also neglecting the needs of the poor and needy in verse 49. So guilty of greed, materialism, pride, as well as sexual abomination. 
the epitome of terrible sin. Samaria's history of cultic sin was also well known. This is why Ezekiel did not elaborate on Samaria very much. Everyone knew it's a byword for cultic sin. Jeroboam had introduced his golden calves to the national shrines at Bethel and Dan and allowed a non-Levitical priesthood to preside over them. That's 1 Kings 12. Samaria too had been judged by God for her abominations and destroyed in 722 BC by the Assyrians, 2 Kings 17. What is the point of all of this? Ezekiel shows here that neither of these sister cities of sin could even come close to matching the sin of Jerusalem. Jerusalem did more detestable things than either of Sodom and Samaria. Thus making Sodom and Samaria seem comparatively righteous. Verse 51. In other words, Jerusalem makes Sodom and Samaria look like choir children or having halos over their heads. So the conclusion is inescapable. If God judged Sodom because of her sin, and if he judged Samaria because of her sin, how will Jerusalem escape from his wrath? The comparison is to invoke shame on Jerusalem's part, as we read in verse 52. In her pride, Jerusalem was scorned by Sodom for her sin. So now that Jerusalem's sin has been uncovered and actually eclipses that of Sodom and Samaria, the surrounding nations from all around will actually scorn Jerusalem. Just like in the days of Jesus, Sodom was the byword for evil and abomination. And so was Samaria. Remember, they hated Samaritans. Disgusting people. And here the Lord says, As they were a byword of all this to you, you are going to become a byword to all the surrounding nations, to them. That you are a disgusting people. You could walk down some street in Egypt. They want to insult you. They would say, you're nothing more than a Jerusalemite. be worse than saying you're nothing more than a sodomite. That's what he's saying. A Jerusalemite. Disgusting term. You will become a byword to all the surrounding pagan nations. Sodom will now use Jerusalem as a byword for sin and destruction as she had been used for so long. The next word also is to serve a very powerful punch. These two cities are going to be restored, Sodom and Samaria. They're going to be restored, however, along with Jerusalem. Now this seems almost like a word of grace. And while it may be to a certain extent, the purpose of this restoration is to shame Jerusalem. This is not to be interpreted positively, but the opposite. Dr. Daniel Block wrote this, quote, The Lord will rehabilitate Jerusalem, but the purpose clause here clarifies his aim, that she may bear her disgrace and feel ashamed not only for her actions, but also, listen to this, for having caused Sodom and Gomorrah 
and Samaria to breathe easier. He goes on to write, any woman who puts these women or these cities, Sodom and Samaria, in a good light should be ashamed of herself. End quote. So in verses 55 to 58, Jerusalem will become the byword as Sodom and Samaria had been not only to Jerusalem, but now Jerusalem will be such a byword to surrounding competitors. They will speak of her as she has spoken of Sodom. And then there's another shift, thank God. In verses 59 through 63, the word of God's wrath will not be the last word. Though Judah had despised God's oath and broken his covenant, and they must be judged, this judgment, however, will not be the end. Though Jerusalem has not remembered God's loving kindness, marital covenant, he will nevertheless establish an everlasting covenant with his unfaithful bride. See that in verse 60? Ezekiel states that he will create, the Lord will create two qualities that have been forgotten by his bride. On the one hand, she will be profoundly aware of having broken the covenant. In the establishment of the new covenant, she will come to realize that she has broken the covenant, the initial covenant, and that she has shattered it so completely that it could no longer stand as the basis of her identity. She will recognize that there is no goodness within herself to which she can appeal, no obedience that can form the basis for confidence in the presence of her Lord. That's the first quality that will be put innately within her in the established new covenant. A humble recognition. Recognition of what she's lost and what she does not deserve. And on the other hand, she can now reason that if the Lord was loving enough to choose her in her helpless and hopeless youth, could he not do so again? If he chose her once, not on the basis of anything in herself, but simply out of his own sovereign will, could he not do so again? If he covenanted with her once, may he not do so once again, but this time forever. Were it not for the Lord's own words, it would be too much to hope for. Second chances like that simply don't happen in real life. Yet this is precisely what God is affirming in this establishment of grace. He will remember his original covenant with her and then establish it as an everlasting covenant. A covenant that includes terrible sinners. A covenant that will be big enough not only to include Jerusalemites, but those of Sodom and Samaria. Hence the restoration of these cities of sin. The nations will view Jerusalem as an object lesson of the wideness of God's mercy. On the day when the Lord, verse 63, makes atonement. Did you see that? The day the Lord makes atonement for Jerusalem. She will then remember and be ashamed. Her tongue will be silenced and her pride humbled once and for all. This is a coming to God on God's terms. Let's pump the brakes just for a second. You know, this is a lot to cover and a lot to take in. 
It's a few implications I want us to really grasp before we depart from this text. If we go back and look over all that what has been said and how Ezekiel has used this allegory to describe God's relationship with his bride. You may have been very deeply troubled by some of the things that he used to describe that relationship. And as you read that text, and perhaps you will reread this text and further study this text, I want you not to ever let these cultural differences keep you from seeing the main points of this text. Because there's some cultural differences here that may cause you to turn away. I simply cannot understand that and see how that would be included in God's word. I know I'm not understanding something. And so we just simply depart from the text and leave Ezekiel because it's just too difficult to grasp or too graphic to accept. What you need to understand here is that God certainly has not been polite in expressing Jerusalem's evil. He has broken our sense of decorum. He doesn't have to abide by our rules of decorum. What humans deem as appropriate, God does not have to abide by them. God can do whatever he desires and expresses it however he desires. And however he expresses it, he will still remain absolutely holy and proper at all times. There's nothing polite about Israel's rebellious history and God wants us to see that. God has chosen to expose Israel's sins in its full ugliness and in the most graphic manner possible. He is going to get his point across, and we must hear it and bow the knee. This is not only describing Israel's rebellion, but notice you also take this as God describing humanity's rebellion. This is us. So God sees us in our rebellion. But because of the cultural distance between then and now, we're likely to react to this message in a way in which we will miss its significance altogether. Also, we should not miss how ancient ears would have heard Ezekiel's original message. This will help us in application. For example, when you and I read of a passerby picking up an abandoned baby, that elicits no surprise in our minds. Our response is, of course! Of course he or she would rescue the baby and find someone to take care of it. What other choice is there? An abandoned baby in a field and we hear it crying, we will run and go show compassion and take care of that baby and find a place for it to live. Of course someone would do that. However, in the ancient world, there was no of course. What do I mean? You see, in those days, if you adopted every abandoned baby you found, your house would soon be busting at the seams. And so in the words of one commentator, this was an acceptable tragedy. People understood this. And nor could Ezekiel's audience immediately assume, as we do, that the mysterious stranger would have favorable plans for that orphan. It was not unknown in antiquity for baby girls to be rescued for the purpose of prostitution rather than adoption. And these differences mean that they would recognize more fully than we do of the grace involved by the Lord's action here. 
picking up this stray and not merely allowing her to survive or even adopting her, but as she grew, marrying her and then lavishing every good thing imaginable on her. We're not, also we're not so accustomed to a wife being completely dependent on her husband. In these days, in our culture, equality between husband and wife is kind of seen in the image of marriage. The image of marriage conveys something quite different to us than it did to those hearers back then. Our culture thinks of co-equal partnership in which each party owned half of everything unless there's some sort of prenuptial agreement to the contrary. I'm talking about us in the church. I'm talking about society in general. In contemporary society, it is also a relationship in our day that can be dissolved as easily as it was made. As one preacher said, anymore when he does a ceremony, it seems that either one of the partners or both of them already have one foot out the door. So today in the relationship of marriage, in our culture, it can be dissolved as easily as it was made, especially if a better offer comes along. Hollywood films, adultery is regularly portrayed not only as acceptable, but praiseworthy, especially if it allows for self-fulfillment. The idea of marriage as a relationship of subordination and obligation on the wife's part is alien to our culture. But understood in that one. In contrast, it is essential to Ezekiel's metaphor that the wife is not an independent agent, free to seek self-fulfillment in the arms of another one, another man. And that death is the appropriate sentence for adultery. It's this culture, the biblical culture. Only if we understand these cultural norms we really get a deeper sense of the ingratitude of this woman that is pictured in this passage, who has taken the gifts that were lavished on her by her true husband and then squandered upon her many lovers. Only then will we feel the just nature of the sentence imposed on her, feelings that would have been automatic for Ezekiel's original hearers. And as we move on, some of these descriptions may be shocking to our ears and cause us to turn away from this passage because it's difficult to accept. Again, this is perhaps why Ezekiel is not preached on very much. So fail to understand that cultural difference and fail to understand the magnitude of God's words, how graphic, the purpose behind this graphic imagery, which should cause the church to really dive in to the difficulties in order to hear what God is saying to us. The danger is that because we may disagree with the cultural norms of the ancient day, especially of marriage expressed in that chapter, finding them to be politically incorrect and oppressive to women, we want to dismiss this chapter altogether. 
Again, Ian Dugweed, he writes this, quote, Ezekiel's goal is not to affirm the abiding validity of the details of his picture, nor is he giving any justification to husbands abusing their wives. Rather, Ezekiel is utilizing conventional norms to illustrate a deeper reality, namely the relationship between the Lord and his people. No matter what our culture wants to think about the relationship within marriage, The point here is that the marriage between the Lord and His people is not a co-equal relationship in which we own whatever He gives us and we are free to choose whether we will serve Him or another God. To think that way is to lose sight of the magnitude of His grace and mercy in choosing us in the first place. Our relationship is a gracious bond freely entered into on His part without any merit on ours. And to be faithful to Him is to experience eternal life. To depart from Him is reprehensible adultery and depravity which can only lead to death. So again, understand the motive behind the graphic imagery. Understand that while it may be difficult for our culture to accept, you've got to really plant your mind in the cultural context. It was an acceptable tragedy. For baby girls to be thrown into the weeds. There's really no profit in them to extend the family's name. It's sad and terrible, I know, but that was an acceptable tragedy in the ancient world. That's how they disposed of one wanted children. And so when the Lord uses this image, people, oh yes, I'm familiar with it, kind of like a parabolic expression. Parables are a situation in life that was common to many. This was common. And so for someone to come by and hear the child crying and to rescue this baby girl is shocking to the original audience because that just did not happen. If anybody did pick up this child, it would be for the purpose to gain some sort of, in some sort of business proposition. So it's just prostitution. Otherwise they let the child perish. And so let that marinate in our souls of the gracious goodness of God as he showed helpless Israel who was an abandoned pagan city, nothing. And God chose her to be the heartland of his people. And yet they turned his back, they turned their back on the husbandman of the covenant and lavished his great gifts prostituted themselves with every false religion imaginable. But as I said, I had trouble titling this message, Jerusalem the Prostitute or Amazing Grace. Because the end of this chapter conveys to us something wonderful. The most glorious point of this passage should really cause the church to worship Worship and humble gratitude for the rest of our lives and for all eternity. What is it that would cause God to reach down into the cesspools of our world where myriads of people are wallowing in their own spiritual cesspools, in their own spiritual nasty blood, covered with sin, swimming in the muck and mire of sinful pleasure, 
abandoned, hopeless, godless, but yet God surveys the world, looks down from heaven, and it would be so like God, as revealed in this passage, to reach down in the dirtiest hole imaginable and pull out a sinner and clean him or her up and make them part of his beautiful bride, the church. That's the message of the text. What is it that would cause God to reach down into the cesspools of our world? Depravity that it has even not only eclipsed the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, depravity and sin that has even eclipsed the sin of Jerusalem. We could name the cities of our own nation. As we hear the news and read the newspaper and survey the sins and rebellion in our own families, eclipses that of the sin represented of these ancient cities. But yet the message from this text is that God will not only reach down into Sodom and Gomorrah, not only into Samaria, not only into Jerusalem, but even deeper and save us. There's no limit to His grace. No place too abominable for His hand to reach down in and pull somebody out. This is why we have hope. This is the God of the Bible. There's no one beyond His reach. There is hope for the vilest offenders. His grace will reach down and save. He did then and He still does. And so as we worship Him for it, also we need to be reminded and warned, there is no place for pride in the house of God. No room for pride. Because I'll tell you this, God's grace can touch the heart of a prostitute more easily than a Pharisee. Our legalistic tendencies are more repulsive to Him any brothel on the earth or any horrendous sin that comes to our mind. This is what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You are sons of the devil. You're of your father, the devil. It wasn't that they were unreachable. But their sin had become so repugnant because they had the grace of God, with His word, his law, and they denied what the law truly conveyed. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But in their smug, pious religiosity, they looked down on everybody else and exalted themselves and believed that they were the prize of God's heart. And God turned from them and went into the cesspools of humanity and saved and reached out to Gentiles, Samaritans, There's no limits to his grace. Whether you call a place Sodom or Jerusalem or whether a more contemporary name, it is not beyond the reach of God's grace. Why? Because the Lord said in this passage concerning wicked Jerusalem that he will make atonement. That he has promised the atonement. That promise has come through Jesus Christ, the righteous that's why he can reach into the cesspools of life and change us and clean us up and give us a foreign righteousness that we could never achieve and I don't even come close and we'll never come close. It has been achieved by him and by his grace he places it on us 
even upon the most wicked, vile sinners that he desires to save. So we should be representatives of this great testimony who were once helpless, hopeless, vile, and dirty, who have been rescued by a loving God who has entered into covenant with us, not on the basis of our own merits, but by his sovereign grace, he passed by and chose to rescue us and cleaned us up. And now we're part of his beautiful bride, the church. Let us always remember the days of his grace and the ongoing grace he will show us as we worship and live for him. I hope that brings clarity to this text and helps you as you work through some of the graphic imagery that's perhaps hard for a contemporary audience to really understand and navigate through. May God add blessing to the reading, hearing, and proclamation of his word.